Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I just want to remind you of my book, Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. It's been out for a few months now. It's available on Amazon. You can go check it out there. I would appreciate you just going and maybe reading about what the book's about. Uh, Dr. Jeff Orge of Gateway Seminary, the president, has written the foreword. Uh, It's been endorsed by uh, Dr. Herschel York at Southern Seminary and Dr. Jim Shaddix at Southeastern, uh, Dr. Nathan Lorick who is the president of the Colorado Baptist Convention, Dr. Earl Wagner, who's the dean of biblical studies at Colorado Christian University, and others as well. And so I I really would appreciate you going and checking out on Amazon, uh, Your Identity in the Trinity. Um, I didn't think I wanted to jump into this because I haven't done it in a long time, but I was listening to uh, Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101 uh, do a critique of Ali Stuckey in her teachings on Calvinism. And I've interacted with Leighton over the years, probably over the past four or five years. We've done some debates together. We've done podcasts together. I consider Leighton a friend. I consider Leighton a brother in Christ. And so this is in no way to actually pick on Leighton individually, and I think he knows that. But what I've entitled this podcast is, is a flower bed of fallacies, a flower bed of fallacies. Um, I'm going to critique some of the theology or the exegetical fallacies or the conclusions that Leighton Flowers um, espouses when he is interacting with Ali Stuckey. And so you may want to go back to Soteriology 101 and listen to that. This is just the first one uh, that I interacted with. And so basically at about the 18-minute mark, 18 minutes, 14 seconds, Uh, Leighton Flowers begins to discuss Romans chapter 8, and obviously Allie Stuckey is talking about total inability, and she goes to Romans 8. And so what I want to do is I just want to interact with some of the the fallacies, some of the, uh, I think, wrong conclusions or the theology that differs from what we as Reformed Calvinists would understand these scriptures to teach versus what the provisionists or the traditional Southern Baptists would understand these. Again, this is not a personal attack on Leighton in particular. What I'm wanting to do is just to illustrate the differences between Reformed theology and provisionist theology. And I'm just going to call it provisionist theology because I think they've changed their terminology from traditional Southern Baptist to more of a uh, the label of being called provisionist because God has made a provision for all people to be saved in the cross. And so I'm just going to use the label that I think they're preferring to use. And so what I'm going to do in this podcast is just show the differences of, of how we would interpret these texts versus how uh, Leighton Flowers and other provisionists, I'm assuming he's representing probably the broad understanding of how provisionists, and, and maybe some Arminians, again, I would not consider the provisionists to be full-blown Arminians. There's very many similarities between the two, uh, but I would not call them Arminian, and I don't think Leighton Flowers himself would call himself an Arminian. I don't think any Southern Baptist would call themselves Arminian per se. Uh, they would call themselves biblicist or traditionalist or provisionist, uh, those type of labels. So let's just read Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 6 through 9. Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay. What Leighton Flowers would say is, is that as an unbeliever whose mind is set on the flesh, you can choose to set your mind on the flesh, or you can choose to set your mind on the Spirit. What I think Leighton misunderstands about this passage is that he looks at this passage more as what Paul is telling us to do. He looks at these as commands or calls that you can choose to please God by putting your mind on the Spirit instead of uh, putting your mind on the flesh. And what we would understand from this passage of Scripture, if you just look at the Greek grammar, is that almost all of these verbs are in the indicative, not in the imperative. Now let me just explain that, because sometimes when I do these podcasts and get into the Greek language, I need to explain these terms, because I think they're very important when we do Bible study, when we do exegetical studies. Um, An indicative is a statement of fact, it's something that is true either about God or about you. It, it's a declaration in the Scriptures. That verb um, is a declaration in the Scriptures of something that is true. It's not a call for you to do anything. It's not a summons or a command or any type of, of imperative for you to do something. It's a statement of reality. It's a statement of fact. On the other hand, an imperative, when the imperative is used, that verb It is a command of something that we are supposed to do. And so there's a a huge difference between an indicative and an imperative. An indicative states what is reality. It states a condition. It states a fact. An imperative tells you what you're supposed to do. And so when you come across these passages of Scripture, you have to ask yourself, is Paul issuing commands in the imperative mood to tell us what we're supposed to do? Or is he issuing statements of reality in the indicative mood? So let me just read that again, and and I will let you know where the verbs are that are in the indicative. Let me just read Romans 8, 6 through 9 again. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It does not submit. That's an indicative. That's a statement of fact. What Paul is stating is is the the mind that's hostile to God does not submit. That's not an imperative. That's not a command that Paul's issuing there. Paul's not saying that you are supposed to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's also in the indicative. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, that's in the indicative. All of these are statements of reality, statements of fact, the condition that Paul is laying forth of unsaved humanity. These are not commands to tell us to set our minds on the flesh. These are not commands to tell us to set our minds on the spirit. That's not what Paul is arguing here. And so what Leighton Flowers would say is that mankind's inability to submit to God's law does not prove man's inability to trust in Christ who fulfilled that law. So what he's teaching here is that basically you can 
choose to set your mind on the flesh, or you can choose to set your mind on the spirit. You have the libertarian free will to make the choice whether you're going to be in the flesh, hostile to God, or whether you're going to be in the spirit. And so in this passage of scripture, Paul does not set for us a choice or a command. Paul is setting forth a condition of reality. So let's ask the question. If Paul were issuing warnings, if Paul were telling us, hey, listen, you need to set your mind on the spirit instead of setting your mind on the flesh, he would have probably used the imperative or at least the subjunctive. And so if someone, quote unquote, is warned about remaining in the flesh, then they can possibly choose to get out of the flesh. They can move from being in the flesh to being in the spirit. And so once a person hears the warning of, hey, you need to get out of the flesh and get into the spirit, stop setting your mind on the flesh, start setting your mind on the spirit. Once a person hears that, the assumption from the provisionist is, oh, you've got the libertarian free will to be able to do that. You can heed the warning. Paul's issuing a warning here, and so you can make the choice. Don't continue to set your mind on the flesh. Start setting your mind on the spirit. You just heed the command. The problem with that understanding is that nowhere in this text, nowhere in this text is Paul issuing a command. These are all indicative statements of reality. So what is the condition of those who are lost? Let's just look at this passage of Scripture and let's look at what Paul teaches. First of all, he says, we are in the flesh. That's a phrase, in the flesh, that means total domination by indwelling sin as a condition. We're going to talk a little bit about this when we get to Romans 6, but I'm just going in the order of how Leighton interacted with these issues of Ali Stuckey. In the flesh, on sarke, which is what the, the Greek term there, means to be dominated by indwelling sin. So it's a condition to be dominated by sin. This is not something that you can float in and out of. This is not something, if you're in the flesh, you can't choose to get out of the flesh. You, that's a condition of reality that marks who you are. And what we would say is, this is a condition from birth. You are born in the flesh. You don't just choose to move in and out of the flesh whenever you want to. You are in the flesh as part of your condition from birth. It's not something that you get hardened into over time. Judicial hardening or being hardened is not the same as being in the flesh. When Paul says in the flesh, he's talking about our natural condition from birth where we are dominated by indwelling sin. It's not something you can choose just to get out of. Hey, stop setting your mind on the flesh and start setting your mind on the spirit. Secondly, all the verbs in this passage, not only are most of them in the indicative, but almost all of them are in the present tense which means when you have a present tense verb, it means it's ongoing reality. If it's an indicative verb in the present tense, this is describing an ongoing condition of reality. It's not something that you float in and out of. It's not something you can choose to get out of. It's a condition that is ongoing that des describes who you are. Also, when Paul says they are not able, it's the Greek word dynamis which means total lack of ability or capacity. So what are the four descriptions of the unregenerate person here in this passage of Scripture? Well, first of all, their mind is 
death. They're spiritually dead. Their mind is death. It's, again, in the present tense. It's not saying that if you set your mind on the flesh, if you choose to do that, it will eventually lead to death. No, it's a present tense indicative verb, meaning right now the unregenerate person's mind is continually set on the flesh. The mind is hostile to God. The mind is death right now. Okay, number two, they are hostile to God. The sinful fleshly mind is hostile. Nowhere in this text does it say anything about growing calloused over time. They've grown calloused over time. They've hardened themselves. Paul is making a distinction between the overall condition of an unsaved person and the overall condition of a saved person. And this condition is fundamental from birth. Nowhere in this text do we find a judicial hardening No word in this text do we find that a person chooses over time to get into the condition where their mind is hostile to God or they've grown calloused over time to where they're in the flesh. Being in the flesh, being hostile to God is a present tense indicative verb that that characterizes the current ongoing condition, the state of reality of the lost person. Colossians 1 21 through 22, Paul says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. At one time before our regeneration, before God made us alive in Christ, we were hostile in mind. The third thing Paul says here about the unregenerate person is the sinful person cannot submit to God's law. Again, that's in the indicative. It's not a command saying, hey, here's the command, submit to God's law. Choose to not set your mind on the flesh. Choose to set your mind on the spirit. It's an indicative present tense verb, which again denotes an inability, an ongoing inability. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a total condition of who you are. You're totally dominated by in, being in the flesh. And because you're in the flesh, because that's the condition you were born with, you cannot submit to God's law. Okay, well, let's just ask the question. What does it mean to submit to God's law? Does this merely mean that an unregenerate, unsaved person cannot fulfill the obligations of the Ten Commandments, that they can't Submit themselves to God's requirements, God's law. Well, yes, that is true, but we need to understand what God's law means. You see, there's a fundamental distinction in Reformed theology between law and gospel. I don't hear this distinction among the provisionists. We in the Reformed tradition, we that are Calvinist, This is a bedrock truth of what we believe, that there is a a fundamental distinction between law and gospel. So what is that distinction? What's the distinction between law and gospel? Well, the law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's even summarized more fully in the first and second of the, the great commandments that Jesus says. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. That encapsulates the first four of the Ten Commandments. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
That refers to commandments 5 through 10. So in summation, the law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It is summarized in the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the law of God is any command that God gives in the Scripture in which we are obligated to perform. Any type of imperative, any type of command that we are obligated to perform. That is law. And one of the purposes of the law, one of the uses of the law, is to show us our inability to perform those. Our utter inability to please God, to come to Christ. What is gospel? Gospel is an indicative. It's an announcement. It is what God has done for us in Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's all what God alone has done for us. The gospel does not tell us to do anything. The gospel is an announcement of what's already been done for us. The law is urging us, commanding us to do something. So any type of command in the scripture is law. Any announcement of what God has done for us in Christ that we're not supposed to do, but we're supposed to receive is gospel. So let's just ask a very simple question. Is repenting and believing law or gospel? Are these duties placed upon all people everywhere as an obligation? In other words, are you commanded to repent and believe? Is that part of God's law or is that gospel? It's law. To repent and believe are duties that are placed upon us that we're supposed to do. Now, the gospel announces the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us in the gospel, in his death, burial, and resurrection. But to repent and believe is not the gospel. Repent and believe is the response to the gospel. It's a command which we're supposed to do. Jesus in Mark chapter 1 says, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Those are commands that Jesus tells us. Paul tells us um, when he's preaching in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, God commands all people everywhere to repent. So repenting and believing, trusting in Christ, placing our faith in Christ, that is in itself submitting to God's law. It's a command placed upon us. So can we submit to God's law in the sense that can we, do we have the ability to repent and believe or do anything spiritually positive to come to Christ? No, we cannot submit to God's law. We cannot repent and believe. Why? Well, Paul has said, you are continually in an ongoing condition of being in the flesh. You are continually in an ongoing condition of being hostile in mind to God. And because you're in the flesh, dominated by the flesh, and because you're hostile to God, that renders you unable to submit to God's law. Not merely just admitting that you can't submit to God's law, but actually doing what God's law requires, and that is repenting and believing. And Paul goes on, the last thing he says about the unregenerate person is the sinful person cannot please God. Now, why would Paul repeat this? 
You cannot submit to God's law. You, you think that would be enough. Well, he compounds that by saying you cannot please God. Why would Paul repeat inability? Didn't he already say that sinners cannot submit to God's law? Why Wouldn't that be enough? Why add the phrase please God? That word please in the original language means to win favor, to be worthy, to bring satisfaction. Paul works overtime in this passage of Scripture to compound human inability by adding this final description. So what pleases God? Well, obedience to His law pleases Him. Keeping the Ten Commandments, loving Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, repenting and believing. All these things please God. Can the unregenerate person who is dominated by being in the flesh, whose mind is dead, whose mind is hostile, who cannot submit to God's law, can the unregenerate person do these things? No. The unregenerate person cannot repent and believe. So when we look at Romans chapter 8, we are seeing Paul describing the fundamental condition of an unsaved person. Not commands for an unsaved person to choose with their libertarian free will to get themselves out of being in the flesh, to stop setting their mind on things that are hostile to God and begin to set their mind on the Spirit. What Paul is saying there is that the unregenerate person is dead in sin. Their mind is hostile to God. They are unable to repent and believe. They are unable to please God in any way possible. And so that is in itself a very good definition of total inability. And we see that by looking at the Greek grammar. We don't see anything in that text about growing hardened over time, growing calloused over time, over time setting your mind hostile to God. Paul is making a distinction here between those who are in the flesh, non-believers, and those who are in the Spirit. Now, let's go on to Romans chapter 6. Basically, what Leighton Flowers has done is he interacts with the usage of the word dead dead in sin. And he goes on to argue that dead doesn't mean moral or spiritual inability the way that we as Calvinists understand it. Dead just means separated. You're separated from God. And he goes to the prodigal son parable to establish his meaning of the word deadness. He would go to the church in Sardis in Revelation, which is a actually saved people that that have become dead in the sense that they are not doing what God's called them to do to understand the meaning of deadness. And then with his understanding in the prodigal son and his understanding in the church in Sardis, he then imports that meaning back into clear passages, that clear didactic passages that teach spiritual deadness. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 and following, Paul's very clear about spiritual deadness that we walked according to the flesh, that we were dominated by Satan, that we were children of wrath, and that God had to make us alive. It's more than just we were separated. It was that we were spiritually dead and did not have the ability to believe in Jesus unless God made us alive. And so he goes to Romans 6, which I'd never really heard him interact with before. And again, there's a fundamental understanding of the grammar. Um, So In Romans chapter 6, when you're looking at this, he he basically says that 
when Paul uses the words dead in Romans chapter 6, again, he's, he's misunderstanding indicatives with imperatives. He's basically telling us that in Romans 6, Paul is commanding us, or Paul is urging us, or Paul is telling us to be dead to sin. So basically, you need to be dead to sin. What Paul is actually saying here is that we should reckon or count ourselves already dead to sin as our master. So I didn't quite understand what he was doing in Romans chapter 6 with, this, with the issue of, of deadness. Again, I think he was misunderstanding indicative and imperative. And I think that's a, that's a huge misunderstanding. That's a big fallacy that I'm seeing in the provisionist theology. Passages that are clearly indicative, that talk about a condition, they're switching to imperative, basically saying or assuming that you have the libertarian free will to fulfill the obligations of those passages and that they're actually in the imperative when they're in, in a command. So Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And Paul goes on to say, by no means. That's a, that's a strong, uh, lang- strong uh, statement there um, in the original language. So verse 2 says, by no means, how can we who died to sin continue to still live in it? We who have died to sin. Paul is not telling us there, he's not commanding us there to say, hey, make yourself dead to sin. He's giving an indicative statement saying, we have actually already died to sin. It's not something we're supposed to do. It's something that God has done for us. So there's, a, again, a, a confusion there on, on, on this whole deadness. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified. Our old, this is not telling you to, hey, other places Paul tells us to crucify the flesh or, or put sin to death. But here he's saying our old life was crucified. Again, indicative. Romans 6, 11, So you must also consider or count or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is something that has already happened to us. We are already dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's not something we're supposed to make ourselves. We're not supposed to choose to be dead to sin which I think is the understanding that Leighton Flowers brings to this. This is something you choose to do. Just choose to make yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is not something you can choose to do. These aren't commands. Paul is giving indicative statements of what has happened to us. We've already been dead to sin, so we're to reckon ourselves. In other words, keep reminding yourselves that this is a reality. If you've become a Christian, you are already dead to sin. It's not something you choose to do um, in and out, that you move into a condition where you can kind of somehow choose to make yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It's a reality, so believe that reality. Romans six seventeen through 18, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, to the standard of teaching in which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. You were once slaves of sin. So in Romans chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives indicative statements of reality of what has happened to the believer. As a believer, you have 
been set free from enslavement to sin, total domination of sin, you have been made dead to sin and alive to Christ. Your mind used to be hostile. Your mind used to be death. You used to be enslaved, but now you are made alive. This is not something you can just one day wake up and decide that that's what you're going to do. These are things that God has to sovereignly do for you. And so why does Paul use slavery language? Why does Paul use domination language about our condition before salvation? What can you do as a slave? What's Paul's argument? As one who's enslaved to sin, all you can do is obey your master. That's what you're, you're dominated by, your master. You have no choice but to follow your master. You can't just choose to not be enslaved to sin anymore. It's not something that you can just, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to no longer be enslaved to sin. I'm going to choose to set my mind on the things of the spirit. I'm going to choose to not set my mind on the things of the flesh. I'm just going to somehow choose this when given the command to do so. That's not the grammar in the text nor the theology in the text. Your mind is hostile. Sin dominate you. You're under its power and you can't please God. So what the fundamental fallacy that we see in this first fallacy is somehow those who are dead in sin, those whose minds are hostile to God, those who are enslaved to sin, those who are dominated by the flesh have the libertarian free will when presented with the choice to get themselves out of that, just merely need to admit their condition. And when they admit their condition, that is conversion. So what ends up happening is Leighton Flowers truncates or minimizes what true conversion really is. What I've heard over and over again His definition of conversion is merely admitting you need salvation. You just need to admit you can't keep God's law. You need to admit that that you're a sinner. You need to admit that you're in slavery. Just admit these things, and that equates conversion. Where we as Calvinists will say, merely admitting that you're a sinner, or merely admitting that you need help, or merely admitting that you can't save yourself, that's good. That's a good start. But a deep work of regeneration needs to go into the heart, mind, and will that actually changes you fundamentally from a bad tree into a good tree so that you can produce the fruit of repentance and faith. What we would say is, as those in the Reformed Calvinistic tradition, the sinful mind is hostile to God, and that mind fundamentally needs to be changed. You don't change your mind. God has to change it. The darkened heart is hard to God and needs to be changed. Not that it just grows hard over time, but that it's born in a condition of needing to be changed because it's hard to God. The stubborn will is hateful towards God. It needs to be changed. So at the depth and core of a person who's without Christ, their mind, their heart, and their will fundamentally need to be changed. So let's ask the question, what then is repentance? Is repentance merely admitting that you need help? 
Is repentance merely admitting that you need to be saved? No, the Greek word metanoia is a change of mind. How can the mind change if it's hostile to God? How can it change if it's enslaved to sin? How can it change if it's spiritually dead? Merely admitting that you're sinful is not the same thing as having a change of mind, heart, and will that actually submits to Christ and produces the fruit of repentance and faith. And what he goes on to give is this alcoholic analogy of a person who's an alcoholic and basically they just need to admit that they're an alcoholic and then admit themselves or or put themselves in a treatment center so that they can go into rehab which is an interesting illustration because how can... Let, let's just take his illustration of an alcoholic. Okay, so basically what he's saying is an alcoholic has a problem. All the alcoholic merely needs to do is admit he has a problem and then check himself into a rehab center to get the help that he needs. Okay, So if you take that analogy to what it means to repent and believe... You have a condition called sin. You can admit that you're a sinner, and then you can admit that you need help, and then that's you're going to get the help you need through salvation. Let's just take that analogy. What about the condition of alcoholism in that person? How can his alcoholism actually change? Does he change... By merely admitting he's an alcoholic, does that change him from being an alcoholic by just admitting it? And does his condition change merely by getting into rehab? Now, maybe over time, through therapy and through a lot of counseling, his condition can be overcome through the process of rehab. Okay, so let's ask the question. How can the condition of spiritual depravity, if we're going to equate alcoholism with sinfulness... How can the condition of sinfulness or spiritual depravity change? Does the condition change by merely admitting that you're sinful and that you need help and that you're reaching out for help? God helps you when you admit you need help. God waits for you to admit you need help. And then he helps you when you basically admit that you need help, but leaves you in that condition until you admit that you need help. I don't think... Leighton Flowers really understands the enslaving addiction and condition of alcoholism that totally dominates a person, and they can't get out of that condition. Merely admitting that you're an alcoholic doesn't actually change your alcoholism. And so what we would say as Calvinists is merely admitting that you're a sinner doesn't change you fundamentally. God has to change your condition. God has to change your mind, your heart, your will in order to overcome that depth of depravity that's so pervasive through the core of your being that without God's intervention, you would still remain dead in your sins. So for the Calvinist, conversion is not merely admitting that you need help. For the Calvinist, our understanding of the Bible is that our condition is so depraved, so helpless, so hopeless that only a sovereign work of God reaching deep within the recesses of a heart, mind, will, emotions, that God has to do this transformative, powerful, supernatural work to actually bring a dead, lifeless, bad tree, supernaturally change it into a good tree that produces fruit. 
Now here's another thing that I also heard him say that I've never heard him say before. And I actually asked for clarification from him on Facebook, and so I'll give you his answer he gave to me. Leighton Flowers likes to talk a lot about judicial hardening, that we're not born in a state of being hardened. We're not born in a state of being hostile to God. It's something that we grow into over time. And so basically a person can grow judicially hardened. They can grow callous. They can grow blind over time. And what he said in that podcast that I'd never heard him say before, and I'm not quoting this verbatim, but I'm going to give you the gist of what he said because I was taking notes as, as, as I was listening to it. He says, once a person has hardened himself or become callous over time by rejecting the gospel, Leighton said that hardness has to be broken. That hardness has to be broken. The issue of judicial hardening having to be broken. And so that began me to think about the question, how? How do you break the hardness if you've grown hardened? Is that something that you in your libertarian free will can somehow become unhardened? What has to happen to a person to break or overcome that hardness or callousness? Do you simply get yourself out of being hardened by believing the gospel appeal when it's given to you? That you've repeatedly hardened yourself to over and over again, but just suddenly after you've hardened yourself, it's given to you this time and, and all of a sudden you can get yourself out of it? Or does God have to do a sovereign work? And if God has to do a sovereign work, why does God have to do that? And does he do it for all hardened people or only for some? These are the questions I had. So I asked Leighton himself. And here's his answer verbatim. I don't believe there's one set answer to this given that each person is different and their level of hardened condition is unique. Paul speaks of his ministry potentially provoking the will of some hardened Jews so that they may turn and be saved. Circumstances such as these or possibly a pigsty could be the catalyst to someone reaching the bottom of their barrel and returning home. When a man's individual will is in question, a specific deterministic formula can't be applied, i.e., what determinative factors must be employed to decisively cause a man's will to choose God as if the will itself isn't the determinative factor. Okay, let's unpack his answer. I asked the question, how does a hardened person get out of being hardened? In other words, if a person is judicially hardened, there's a possibility for that in, in their theology for that person to get out of that hardened state. They don't have to remain in that state. It's not, it's not the end for them. It's not, a, it's not a permanent judicial hardening. They can get out of it. It can be broken. Okay, so how is it broken? Well, circumstances can... So, so for example, I would say maybe God, he would say maybe God's discipline, a pigsty experience would be the catalyst. Okay? But then the bottom line answer is, ultimately, the man's individual will is the determining factor. So if a person has been judicially hardened over time, then that person can overcome that judicial hardening simply by his will. Which brings up a lot of weird possibilities. If a person is hardened and their person is calloused, does that not mean that they are not receiving truth? Does that mean they put themselves at a point where they are no longer hearing or believing that they're blinded? 
And so if they are blinded and they are deaf and they are calloused and they are hardened to the message and a, an experience, a pigsty experience comes, that's just the catalyst. So the experience is the catalyst for you to use your free will to get yourself out of being hardened. In other words, he's saying that God doesn't really have to do anything sovereignly to overcome that hardness. It's still left up to the individual's will. The individual got themselves in that hardened state over time, and therefore that individual can get themselves out of that hardened state by whatever different catalysts may come in their lives, whether it's God's discipline or whether it's a pigsty. So the question then becomes, okay, who ordained those catalysts? Who ordained the circumstances to bring you out of that? Who got you into the pigsty? How did those events happen in time? And so it was a very interesting answer that there's an acknowledgement that judicial hardening has to be broken, but the question then becomes, okay, well, how does, it, how does a person get out of being hardened? The fundamental answer given by Leighton Flowers is it's the person. The person gets themselves out by using their libertarian free will. And I'd never heard that before. I never heard him give such a clear answer like that before. And so it was very interesting to me that everything boils down to libertarian free will and that his final statement there is, what determinative factors must be employed to decisively cause a man's will to choose God as if the will itself isn't the determinative factor? Okay, there's his answer. The will is the factor that causes a person to choose God. So even if a person has been hardened, calloused, blinded, where they're no longer hearing, seeing, or believing, they can, whatever means necessary, whatever catalyst is used, it's merely a catalyst that somehow opens up their eyes to them using their libertarian free will to respond to the gospel. It's a very telling answer because it takes out any type of any type of determinism. So God does not determine the catalyst. God does not determine the pigsty situation. God does not determine who's going to bring the gospel to that person. And let's just say God even determines those things. Let's just say that God sovereignly orchestrates events to put the person in fatherly discipline where they've hardened themselves so much that they're going through a time of discipline that God orchestrates events, God orchestrates a pigsty experience, God orchestrates events to put them at the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. So God sovereignly orchestrates all of these events. He determines all these events. The person is in there. The event itself is merely a catalyst. A catalyst for what? To use their libertarian free will to overcome that. Very, very interesting answer. The last thing I want to deal with is the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. And this is another thing I'd, I'd heard him talk about the wedding banquet parable, but then I heard him clearly articulate something that was very shocking that I actually heard that, that made, made it very clear to me where he stands on this issue. So let's just read the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, 
one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. But the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this is about the 45-minute mark in the first podcast that he interacts with, with Ali Stuckey. So, obviously, this is a parable about people rejecting the Jews, particularly rejecting the prophets that have come to them. And so, um, people go out into the highways and byways, and they invite people in. And a man comes into the wedding banquet, and he's not wearing the right clothes. He's, he's not wearing the wedding garment. And so, therefore, because he's not clothed properly in the wedding garments, he is cast into outer darkness. And so, what the parable may mean is that the wedding garment represents the imputed righteousness of Christ that one receives when they trust Christ for salvation that counts them not guilty before God and acceptable in His sight because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, here's where it got very, very interesting. and I never really understood his view before, and I hope I clearly articulate what his view is because I wrote it down. I think Leighton Flowers argues that the condition for election, the condition for being chosen, is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now think about that for a moment. It's conditional election, not unconditional election. It's conditional election. So the the condition that God uses or sees or ordains for a person to be chosen before the foundation of the world is that they have on the righteousness of Christ, that they have imputed righteousness. And so once a person uses their libertarian free will to trust Christ and receives the imputed righteousness for Christ, that's the condition for them being elected. So let me just ask the question. Is the wedding garment, i.e. the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us by faith, is that the condition for election? Or is that the condition for entry into heaven? Because what is the parable saying? The the banquet is the eschatological banquet at the end of the age, which represents heaven. And so he wasn't able to enter into salvation or to heaven because he didn't have the right garments. So The way I understand the parable is the condition to get into the wedding banquet, i.e. the condition to get into heaven, is the righteousness of Christ. That's not the condition for being elected. He seems to say that one has to become prepared to be elected. You prepare yourself to be elected by putting on the wedding garments, i.e. the righteousness of Christ through faith, and that qualifies you to be elected. So putting on the wedding clothes through your faith qualifies you to be elect. Now, how does the gift of imputation work in this? Is Christ's righteousness a gift given to you? Or is it something you appropriate through your libertarian free will and simply put on when you choose Christ? 
Again, this is conditional election. You met the requirement or you met the conditions for being elected. What were those conditions? When the message came to you, you used your libertarian free will to put on the wedding garments and therefore that you met the condition for being elected. And so again, I think he misunderstands the conditions for election with the conditions for conversion or salvation or, or entering to heaven. No one gets into heaven without the imputed righteousness of Christ. But the imputed righteousness of Christ gained through your libertarian free will is the condition you have to meet in order to be elected. God does not elect you based upon his sovereign will. He actually grants you uh, and grants that saving faith at justification the way we would believe. So let's just talk about the golden chain of redemption, Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30. Now I know that the parable of the wedding banquet teaches election. Many are called for your chosen. But let's go to Paul's clear didactic teaching about imputed righteousness. Okay? The golden chain of redemption. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay? The, in the golden chain of redemption, this reality is true for, for, for everyone all the way through. So those whom God predestined all the way through the very end are going to be glorified. And so God chooses or predestines. When does that happen? Before the foundation of the world. God calls effectually those whom he has predestined in time. What happens when God calls someone to salvation? Well, they repent and believe because in order to be justified, which is those whom he called, he also justified, in order to be justified, you have to believe. And so what Paul does here, he doesn't actually put repentance and belief in this passage of Scripture in the golden chain of redemption. We have to infer that once an elect person has been effectually called, they will repent and believe. Those are gifts of God given to the elect person to be able to repent and believe. And as a result of repenting and believing as gifts of God, that person is justified. And so we would say that the conditions for election are unconditional in the sense that God sovereignly chooses and predestines based upon His sovereign will alone. He doesn't look down the corridors of time to see who's going to put on the wedding garments to meet the condition of faith. It's not foreseen faith, which is really what that argument is, is being made there, that the conditions for election is putting on the right wedding garments. We would say the Reformed position is that God unconditionally elects certain individuals to salvation before the foundation of the world, in time, the Holy Spirit sovereignly, effectually calls those people and grants them the gifts of repentance and faith. Once they repent and believe, they are justified freely with the imputed righteousness of Christ. Therefore, being counted not guilty before God, having peace with God once and for all, granting them access to the wedding banquet to heaven. So, the requirement to get into the wedding banquet is the imputed righteousness of Christ. But that comes as a free gift through the effectual call, through sovereign regeneration, through unconditional election. Not simply you met the conditions by using your libertarian free will to get yourself into the wedding banquet. And then one last thing here in John 10, he redefines the word sheep. John 10, 25 and 26, 
Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Okay, we as Reformed Calvinists would say the sheep are the elect, those whom God calls to himself, those whom Christ laid down his life. The sheep are the elect of God. He basically argues that the first century Jew would understand a sheep as merely a person who was a God-fearer, a person who was already worshiping and following God, a person who genuinely, deep down, followed the Father and disposed themselves to follow the Son. And so a sheep back then was merely a follower of God. And so when Jesus says, you're not among my sheep, he wasn't saying that they weren't chosen before the foundation of the world, and the reason they're not coming is because they were not chosen and they would never come. It's basically that they weren't following the Father already. You won't believe Jesus because you're not already a follower of the Father. So how does one become a follower of the Father? How does one become a sheep? Well, there are people who are already following the Father. People like Cornelius. People like Um, the God-fearing Jews who were already following the Father, and then when Jesus came along, they followed Him because they were already following the Father. And when it says that you're not of my sheep, Leighton Flowers assumes that the reason people are not of God, they're not among His sheep, is because they chose over time to suppress the truth, they chose to grow callous, they chose to become hardened, they, they put themselves in a position to not be among the, the sheep because they, over time, rejected the message over and over again and became judicially hardened. And so they weren't the sheep. Instead of affirming that they're not of God, they're not the sheep because they're not the elect. And they won't come because they're spiritually dead and unable to come. So this whole growing hardened over time is imported into this John 10 passage. Nowhere in the passage in John 10 does it say that these Jews were hardened over time or these Pharisees grew blinded over time. I think he imports this growing hardened in almost every text if it is theology. He would argue they could be of God. They could be of the sheep if they met the conditions like Cornelius of listening to the Father, humbling themselves. So you're not one of the sheep because you did not use your libertarian free will to accept the teachings of the Father, and over time you grew calloused and hardened and put yourself outside the position of being a sheep, but you could become a sheep if you just used your libertarian free will to believe the message when it came. So even if you're hardened, again, over time you're calloused, you're judicially hardened, you're blind, you can't hear... You, you haven't placed yourself outside of not being one of the sheep. You can use your libertarian free will to, again, become one of those sheep and overcome that brokenness, over, I mean, overcome that hardness, overcome that deadness. So fundamentally, let's just wrap this up with two fundamental issues that are the distinct issues between the traditional Southern Baptist provisionist view and the Reformed Calvinistic view. We affirm spiritual and moral inability from birth that renders every person incapable of coming to God apart from the sovereign work of grace. 
they would say that, no, that's not a condition from birth. That's something that people, yes, people are sinful, but they can choose to set their mind on the flesh. They can choose to become in the spirit. They can choose to break out of their hardness. Ultimately, it comes down to libertarian free will being the ultimate decisive factor in how a person's going to come to faith in Christ. They also don't believe in unconditional election before the foundation of the world of certain individuals. You meet the conditions of becoming one of the elect, i.e., when you put your faith in Christ and God sees that, then you have met the conditions to become one of the elect. So ultimately, it boils down to libertarian free will being the decisive and determinative factor in everything. Overcoming that hardness, overcoming that judicial hardening and callousness is still your libertarian free will. So any type of sovereign, internal, regenerative work of God to reach down into the deep recesses of the heart, mind, will, emotions to actually affect a change, to produce a change whereby a spiritually dead sinner will come to faith in Christ is denied by the provisionists. They see man as sinful, but not totally unable to come to faith in God. Therefore, we would say we are spiritually and morally unable to come to Christ. They would say that anybody can come to Christ when the gospel appeal is given. You have libertarian free will to choose it or not to choose it. And if you suppress it over time, if you reject it over time, you're going to grow callous. You're going to go blind. You're going to grow hardened. You're going to grow in a state of being calloused. And God doesn't necessarily have to do a sovereign work to overcome that. Ultimately, you're the decisive factor in whether you're going to be out of that condition of being hardened. God may use situations in your life as catalysts to to move you to that point, but ultimately, it's your libertarian free will. So hopefully you see the clear distinctions between what we as Reformed Calvinists would understand versus the flower bed of fallacies that we would understand would be in the provisionist theology. Again, this is not a personal attack on Leighton. I appreciate what he does. This is more just interacting with his theology to show how we would understand it very differently. And I know there is a lot of people that um, are kind of confused with Soteriology 101 because they're not Arminian and they're not Calvinistic and what, what type of animal are they? And so um, in some ways, I've kind of gotten a niche over the past four or five years of trying to articulate faithfully, I think, accurately uh, what the traditional Southern Baptist provisionists actually believe without characterizing it or caricaturing it or, or, or painting it in a, in a way that's not accurate. So I, I hopefully I've accurately uh, presented what they, what they believe on this from their own words. And so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.